0: seems like, you know, okay, we're jumping to a new subject. I don't think so. Look at what God says, starting in verse 1. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people, who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh, and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I'm holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils a fire that burns all the day. The always written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay, I will even repay into their bosom both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord, because they've incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills. Therefore I will measure their formal work into their bosom. Now, the problem with this passage is there's some difficulty in understanding what he's referring to in this but if I've got the right understanding of this I think he's got something to say to him here in verse 1 he talks about those who did not ask for him those who didn't seek him a nation which didn't call on his name I think he's talking about the Gentiles and I think what he's saying is. That God wasn't hard to find. Even people who weren't looking for him found him. That, that it's not like it's such a big trick to come to the Lord and serve him. There were people who didn't ask for him, who didn't seek him, who didn't call on his name. That sought him and found him. And, and God offered himself to if the Gentiles could find God, if, if, if as bad as they were and as far away as they were and as, as lacking in spiritual perception and initiative as what the Gentiles were, if they even came to God. And then look at the Jews. Verse 2. I spread out my hands all day long to rebellious people. I mean, God, in the context of the Jews... He's he's just begged them and pleaded with them and entreated with them day after day, all day long. And what have they done? Look at the outrageous behavior in verses 2 through 7. So I think God's saying, you know, this is not my problem. It isn't that it was so difficult to come to me and to find me and to serve me. Because the Gentiles who weren't even trying to found me, it's that even with, with you guys, even when I'm begging you, I've got my hands wet, almost like God's praying to them and entreating them to serve Him, and they just do all manner of unspeakably horrible things. Now, not that there's a lot of people who don't take verse one the way I'm taking it. Um, I would, in in defense, somewhat. Uh, of the way I'm looking at that I would suggest that that is the way I think Paul takes this in Romans chapter 10 which influences me somewhat with that Uh, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 19 but I say surely Israel did not know did they? First Moses says I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation by a nation without understanding I will anger you and Isaiah is very bold and says I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I stretched out my hands to disobedient and obstinate people. Well, the commentators take that as a different application than what Isaiah was making. But I really think that's Isaiah's point. I think Isaiah is saying, it's not, you know, God's saying that Isaiah, it's not my fault. It's not that you couldn't find me. I was there and people who weren't looking found me, but look at, I, I sought you constantly and you wouldn't serve me. Comments and kind of thoughts on that I idea when I did, we finalized 64 and started to move This seems to be their answer, answer to their objections in chapter
1: 1.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I think this is, you know, God saying. Why are you blaming me? You know, it's, this is your fault. And and maybe goes back to what we said earlier. What should they really be doing? And repenting. repenting. Yeah, that would be nice. You know, how about straightening up your life? You know, I mean look at the horrible things they were doing here as he catalogues their sins. What all do you see in this? What were, what were they doing that was pretty outrageous? What's he condemning basically? Idolatry. idolatry. Isn't that isn't that what he's really uh, really looking at here? <laughs> Is there idolatry? They're, you know, they're they're doing all these ridiculous things. You know, he says, I mean, look at three. The people who continually provoke me to my face. (laughs) Offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. You know, what's our expression for provoking me to my face? What do we say? Spitting their face. Spitting their face or just being in their face. And we kind of use that, you know, do something in their face. It's like, you know, just kind of almost right up there, you know, just taunting, just just really, you know, coming right up to them and just defying them, just challenging them. Yeah, I think that's what God's saying. And you, you're just right up in my face, you know, sticking your tongue out at me. I mean, that's the way it looks to God when they offer sacrifice in the gardens. Now, sacrifice in the gardens, what would that involve? Where should they have offered sacrifices? only the temple and you know even in the very first chapter of Isaiah in chapter 1 verse 29 he talks about the oaks and the gardens where they were offering idolatrous sacrifices so I think that's what he's got reference to the idolatry and uh, burning incense on bricks what's wrong with uh, burning incense on bricks What were they supposed to make their altars out of? Uncut Uncut stones. Exodus 20, 25, for example, says that. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, 27, and uh, verse 5, You shall build there an altar of the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones. So, they were... They were offering sacrifices to idols on on altars made of unauthorized material. (laughs) How would God feel about things like that? He wouldn't like it. (laughs) Right? You know, I mean, God wants us to treat him as holy. They aren't concerned about that. You know, look at what they were doing in four. What do you see? What's wrong with their behavior in four and five? Four especially. Yeah. They didn't seem to have any respect for the Lord's will as far as their lives were concerned. How did God want them to deal with things that were unclean? Absolutely. And what were they doing? the Yeah, exactly. And eating the swine's flesh which of course was an unclean animal and brought them unclean meat and then what was their attitude in verse 5? Don't tell me what it is. Yes! Whoa! Isn't that outrageous? I think they're, they're, we're, we're better than you are. It's bad to be prideful. It's really bad. It's even worse to be prideful when you have nothing to be prideful over. You know, this is just really, you know, an outrage. Look at, do you see the contrast between two and five? In two, I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. So that's God all day long begging, and treating, almost like he praying to them. And then in five, this, this fire of of, of incense and sacrifice to the idols is a fire that burns all the day God constantly entreating them then constantly defying him how would you feel if you were God and you heard what they had to say in the end of chapter 63 and then 64
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to laugh at it knowing how entreatment that was
0: does I be angry does this make what they're saying in the end of 63 and 64 sound a little different to you when you see how God sees their life you know what what if you heard like a kid you know apologizing to his parents and and saying now now will you do this now you do that and you knew what their lifestyle was. You knew how they were just continuing to defy every rule their parents ever made. You know, and, and would that kind of make you feel a little differently about their requests and, and about, you know, even about their confession of their sins? I mean, if you were really grieved about your sins, what would you do? You'd change, wouldn't you? I mean, you know, what if, what if you hear somebody <laughs> confessing and continuing right on in their sins? Doesn't it call into question the sincerity of the confession? Thoughts?
1: I wonder, uh, we're talking about the Israelites here, but I guess what I'm trying to say, I wonder is how often does God give us way towards us? in our day to day lives uh, how, how uh, for lack of a better word, hypocritical are we um, a lot of time not even realizing it uh, I don't think the Israelites were waking up that morning saying let's be hypocrites today but rather they just were so unwise as many of us are today 4
2: or 5 especially in my of Zephaniah chapter 1 <coughs> um, in verse 5 and the Lord's talking to Judah and it says those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord but also who also swear by talking about the hypocrisy of them they were serving these idolatrous gods supposed gods and then going to God the real Lord whenever they needed him just kind of going back and forth depending upon the situation and I can't help but wonder if we don't like back the fact you saying the same thing today with our own gods you know when everything is going fine we go back to our whatever you name, you name it you know money whatever it might be whatever things get up we turn back to the Lord and the differences
0: that, that Jesus you know, once were and I wonder about you know what about linking that idea up with something else we said earlier <laughs> when when our confession is not really accompanied by genuine and profound grief then it's so easy for us just to continue right on in our sin even as we're confessing because it's mostly just saying it it's not really humbling ourselves and grieving our sin if you grieved it more sincerely wouldn't you be more motivated to change it and I think about things in my own life where I have confessed over and over again and I've asked for forgiveness over and over again but I've done it lightly. I've done it sort of mechanically. I've done it because I didn't want him to hold it against me, not because I was grieved for what I've done. And when I'm not grieved for what I've done, when it didn't really bother me, it wasn't hard at all just to continue right on into the sin, even as I was confessing. Look at what he says in 6. Behold, is it written before me. It kind of remind you, in, in Isaiah 4, he talks about you know the writing of the names in the book of life well God's also got a writing of the acts of the wicked it's written before me I will not keep silent but I will repay now interestingly they wanted God not to keep silent but to come down and do something well they'll give what they want God's not going to keep silent he's going to come but it's not going to be for what they want I will even repay into their bosom both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers because they burnt burned incense in the mountains and scored me on the hills. they provoked me everywhere they've gone. Do you think that God's going to come down and save them? God's going to come down alright, but it's not going to be to do what they thought he was going to do. That's really, I think this is, if we understand it this way, I think this is a really powerful message for us. In terms of how do we see God and what's our relationship with God like? And are we just viewing God as sort of a vending machine to dispense forgiveness, salvation, and other blessings in exchange for us putting in the coin of some proper words? Uh, What's helpful to you when you realize you've done something really
1: wrong and you don't feel... Probably how wrong it was and how despicable it was to God. Yet you know you should do something about it. What are are some helpful things
0: I guess for us to humble ourselves? And that's a good question. How can we come to grieve our sins more like we ought to? One thing I would say is developing a more personal view of God and seeing how much God is hurt when we sin you know if we, this is just kind of a mechanical book thing it may not create as much grief in us but when we look at what God has done how much he loves us how much he really cares for us and we understand the depth of his grief when we sin that may help what else could what else would help us to grieve our sins more more well, probably I
2: Kind of what you were saying, but thinking about how people hurt you in the past, applying that to what you could
0: <coughs> do. That's good. Other thoughts? That's pretty practical to think about. Yes, Anita. We
3: don't confess our sins to each other because they embarrass us and uh, shame us. But we will confess it to God without that embarrassment and shame. So maybe confessing them to each other, or at least thinking about how I would feel, saying this to another person would help us to feel the shame
0: we should. Yeah, I think that's a very good comment. I do think confessing to others is a key part of this. But isn't it interesting? Probably most of us feel this way. Is it easier for us to confess our sins to God than to confess our sins to each other? And why? What does that say? You
3: know, we bigger than God.
0: Yes. Yeah, I, I think people seem more real to us than God. Uh, you know, I really, I almost think it ought to be the opposite. You know, I mean, let me say this. Would it, is it easier for you to confess your sins to somebody you know has messed up a whole lot in their own life? Or is it easier for you to confess your sins to somebody you see as being really righteous and spiritual? Hmm. It's easier for us to confess them to which? Yeah, absolutely. It's easier normally in (laughs) human relations to confess to somebody you know has messed up even worse than you have. So why should it be so easy for us to confess to God? I think because we don't see God as being that real. You know, we're just sort of confessing mechanically but we're not really confessing from the heart and thinking about who God is as we're confessing I think really visualizing thinking about God in that. I think it's a very interesting comment I would say the same thing it's easier for me to <laughs> confess to God than to other people but I think that is a commentary on how lightly I take God other thoughts? so i think this is kind of a whole section probably from about 63 7 down to 65 7 Uh, and what we see is they wish god would help them out and bail them out but they're not really serious about about their sin Uh, i might also one other passage i'll notice in 65 6 i will not keep silent Look at the end of 64. Will you keep silent? They didn't want God to keep silent, but they probably don't want him to speak the way he's speaking in 65.6. If you ever wanted God to come and answer you, but you probably didn't want the answer he was going to give, uh, you know, when you ask for God to come down and intervene and all that, you might better be careful about that. All right, anything else through 65.7? Good discussion. Okay. Would somebody read uh, 8 to 16.
2: Thus says the Lord, As anyone is found in the cluster, and one says, You not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servants' sake, that it may not destroy them all. I will bring forth the from Jacob, and from Judah and heir of my mountain. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. For Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of a poor, a place for herds to lie down. To my people who have sought me. sixteen, right? Yes. But so you are those who forsake the Lord, who forgot my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, and who furnish a drink offering for many. Therefore, I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I do not delight. Therefore, says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of the heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of your heart, and wail for grief of spirit. And you shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you, and call of servants by another name. (coughs) So So that who he blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and
0: because they are hidden from my eyes. I really think this is a key passage in this section and to some extent a key passage in Isaiah and really helping us kind of put everything in its proper place. In verse 8, 9, and 10, what is God going to do to bless them? The people that follow him, his hey, servants, he won't destroy them. Not going to destroy them. Oh, yeah. We'll come to that in a second. But whoever he's talking about, is not going to destroy them. What's he going to do? He's going to use them. He's going to, he's going to keep the promise. What promise? The promise my To want to do all nations Okay. Yes. There'll be a blessing. What will they receive? What you say? about uh, new wine? New wine, okay. What will they receive in 9 and 10? High mountains? Yeah, the land. You know, they're going to inherit the land. The servants will dwell there. Remember what they've been saying about... The holy cities being a wilderness and you know they've been taken off into captivity and then things are just grown up in desolate, but now God's going to cause them to inherit his land. Sharon would be pasture land for flock, the valley of Acre, a resting place for herds. Now, Sharon was where in the land? Near what? Close to the coast? Yes. Near Tracy? Yeah. Near the Mount Carmel area, on the, near the coast. Where was Acre? On the other
3: side, near the Jordan?
0: Yes. Remember we associate Acor with what area? Jericho. Jericho and Ai. Uh, because Acre was where one a certain significant event occurred. Achan after. stoning of Achan after he took those spoils of Jericho so really from one side of the country to the other God is going to bless with abundance and 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 security but now in 11 and 12 you forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain who set a table for fortune and filled cups with mixed wine for destiny it looks to me like they are trying to wine and dine the gods of fortune and destiny well, they're going to be destined themselves. Destined for what? The sword. The sword. Slaughter. Because I called and you didn't answer. I spoke and you didn't hear. You did what was evil in my sight and chose that which I did not delight. Now, some of you have already seen this when you first heard it. The contrast here between there's these blessings of God and there's the punishment of God is that God is dividing between the faithful and the unfaithful among his people. God is going to actually come and bless. They've been longing for God to come and save them, forgive them, and bless them. God's going to do that. But He's careful, he, he, he very carefully determines who he's going to do that with. You know, in verse 8, he's going to act in behalf of his servants. At the end of verse 10, my people who seek me, those who really serve God, those who really seek him, he is going to bless. But those who are idolatrous, who do evil and do what they choose, he's going to punish them. And so he makes the contrast in 13 and following. Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. And so forth. God is making the contrast between Israel and Israel. There are those who are his servants, who seek him, who are faithful. There's the remnant that God will bless. That God will intervene, and he will bring them back. And he will relieve the burden of the punishment. And there's the rest of them who are still wicked, who have not really humbled themselves and not really turned back to God. And God's going to punish them. And I think that's such a key element in Isaiah. You've got God coming down and doing two things. He's going to bless his people and he's going to punish his people. That is, he's going to bless those who seek him and they're going to be his true people. And those of his people who aren't seeking him or are still serving their idols are punished. This is the, the prelude to like Romans 9. They're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. God had his, has his true people. Then he has people who have a uh, blood connection but not a faith connection with his people. Comments and thoughts on all this. Yes, sir. Um
2: kinda of, when I have when we were reading this kinda of reminds me of the people saying, Oh, you know, God's such a good, just God and loves us so much, he would never do anything hurt us or whatever. You're talking about the Lord slaying his people. I mean, God's not killing them for what they've done. It's going against everything it's people would say, Oh, God was me, God loves me, he would never punish me like that. he uh, you know, just loves me too much to to do that and hear to find the Lord slaying his people.
1: Good boy. Right. I find it really interesting that uh, we often, you know, of course, see in Isaiah and all of the Old Testament that this is God's people and this is we're God's people, and it's hard for us to think about how He could uh, do something like this to us, like He does to His children in the Old Testament. But when uh, you look in, uh, well, like in the Book of Revelation, where He talks, when He talks about spewing, spewing them out of His mouth, He's talking to Christians there he's talking to his people and he's talking to the ones that are neither hot nor cold which, uh, which is really really me and Philip was talking about it yesterday really hard for us to imagine that we could plateau so to speak and that would not really be what God wants at all
0: so does that mean there could be people in churches that we're a part of that God would end up rejecting and punishing absolutely I mean that's exactly what you see here they, this is Israel these are God's people supposedly but God didn't see all these people at all he distinguishes between the ones who seek him and the ones who don't repent and really those who seek him among God's people were remnant you know we cannot just put our confidence in the fact that we're identified with a group of people that are supposedly God's people
1: right? Comment. 12, uh, shame hit on this, but when it says, and you shall bow down to the slaughter, when I think of the word slaughter, I think of an animal being killed, I think yeah, you know, uh, just an animal uh, being cut up for its meat, and God's talking to his people, he's saying this in a sense that appeals to me as, you are like the animals that you kill for food. And that, I think, if we have a problem seeing God's attitude towards sin, that when we see phrases like, uh, well, here we see the word slaughter. When we see that, I think that should put in our hearts what God's attitude is towards sin. Amen. Good
0: point. He a bunch of other comments. Will we transition now to the blessings for the faithful remnant? So, chapter 65, verses 17 to 25.
3: For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, or come to mind. But be glad, rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create re- uh, Jerusalem has a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard anywhere, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live for a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die one hundred years old, but the sinner, being one hundred years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build... They shall not build, and another inhabit. They shall not plant, and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. They shall come to pass, that before they call, I will answer them. And while they are blessed, I will hear the wolf and the lamb shall feed together the lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's
0: food they shall not hurt nor destroy and all my holy mountain sisters. this is a wonderful picture of great blessings for God's true people in 6517 I create new heavens and a new earth what does that say? <laughs> the
1: order of things
0: Yes. A whole, what does the New Testament say? A whole new creation. You know, a new birth into a new world. Now, he's not talking here about some physical new heavens and new earth. He's talking about what we have in Christ. It's a whole new thing. It's a whole new environment, a whole new place to live. As he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, all things have become new to the point where the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. We have amnesia as far as the things the passed because we're living in this new, exciting, ideal world in Christ. I think this is this is very much pointing forward to the time of Christ, to the blessings that we have where for God's true people he starts life all over again he gives them a whole new world to be a part of and it's a great world it's so much better verse 18 be glad and rejoice forever in what I create for behold I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness there's great joy and gladness I'll, I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people isn't that amazing think about think about the identification of God with his people. Look at 63.9. What does 63.9 say about God? Basically he's hurt and we're hurt. Yes. And now what does 65.19 say about God? Yes. God is so compassionate and identifies himself so much with his people that when we're afflicted, he's afflicted. When we we rejoice, he rejoices. God loves us that much. Can, Can you see God getting excited and being really happy and thrilled? over our joys, over the blessings that he's given to us. I think that's exactly the picture that you see. This new world for God's people is a world of joy that God rejoices in our sharing. There's no more weeping or crying. It's just it's just so much better. It's it's a so it's, it's a just a wonderful new order. Comments and thoughts through nineteen? Yes. Um Well kinda thinking about this,
1: how he says um the former things will not be remembered or come to mind and it reminded me of what Jesus said you know he who looks back um, while plowing or whatever is not worthy of the kingdom of God or whatever and how God has I guess richly blessed us to forget those things and how we just kind of struggle every now and then to lose sight of what God's given us and we look back to our
0: former ways and I guess we just become distracted or blinded yes it's a very good point I mean, if God has gone to all the trouble to create something so new and wonderful for us, what do you suppose he thinks when we look longingly back to the past? It's kind of like, a, what if the prodigal son comes home and you know, begs to be a servant and, and no, his father kills the fattened cat, he puts a robe and shoes on and has a big celebration. And in the middle of this big celebration of joy, the prodigal son is saying, You know, I wish I was back in that far country where I could live it up with the harlots and, you know, where I could be feeding the, the swine again. I was so good back there. <laughs> what would you think about the prodigal son if he did it like that? You'd think he'd it. Yeah! That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, would it? Of course, God's people have never, ever done anything like that, have they? <laughs> <laughs> did that when they taken out of Egypt like oh we actually had it pretty good back in Egypt. Yes wasn't that incredible? because when they were in Egypt what were they doing? crying out in affliction and oppression and slavery and they don't anymore get out of the, into the wilderness and they're like, oh man, we had so much to eat back there. It was so good so good back there. man, why'd you ever take us out in the first place you bringing us out here to die? yeah so we ever do that we're saved by God from our sins and corruption and wickedness do you ever think man I wish I could go back to where I was doing all the worldly things I used to do and I didn't have to worry about it that is ridiculous you know with what God has given us the fellowship that we have with him can you imagine what he must think if we, if we look longingly back to the to the, the filthy sins of the past, it's just like wanting to go back and slop the hogs again. Remember Lot's wife. Good comment Thought, Other thoughts about all that or anything through 19. This is going to be so such a blast place. <coughs> That no longer will there be, verse 20, in it an infant, who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of a hundred. And the one who does not reach the age of a hundred will be thought accursed. I mean, death at the young age of a hundred will be thought of as, you know, basically being a special example of the wrath of God. You know, you lived at least a hundred, you know. Uh, that's I, I just read um, just the other day I was kind of I was kind of taken aback by this. Uh, really I, I I don't know, it surprised me it wouldn't <coughs> you. The oldest man in the world died. You know how old he was? 115. I believe he was anybody did you read that or are you just guessing? Was he 115? I think he was 112, but maybe he's hundred and fifteen. Even hundred and fifteen. That was the oldest man in the world. Only 115. As I get older, you know, that just seems like that. You know. So, uh, yeah, that's right. But in God's new world, this new heavens and new earth, what does this say that God gives his people? What would the New Testament say without the figure? God gives his people what? Eternal life. That's exactly what he's saying. This is symbolic of the eternal life. Because even if we die, we live, you know, in Christ. So, and then, I love 21 and 22. They'll build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They won't build and have another inhabit or plant and have another. eat. look back at Leviticus 26, when you see the curses of the covenant, if they were unfaithful to God's covenant. Leviticus 26, 16, he says, you know, if you don't obey me, then I will do all this to you. In the end of verse 16, you will sow your seed usefully or your enemies will eat it up. And that idea, the futility curses of where you do all the work and somebody else reaps the benefit. That was the punishment for not obeying God's covenant. It's what they did when they entered the land. God enabled them to use the houses somebody else built and eat the uh, fruit of the things other people planted. And uh, then it was done in reverse to them in the captivity. But now again, they will be able to see security in enjoying the fruit of their labor and not doing all the work and have somebody else enjoy it. And uh, they'll be the the blessed offspring of the Lord. In verse twenty three, look at verse twenty four. This is an amazing thing. What will God do for them in this new world? When? Before they even call. Before they even call. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. You know, a God that answers before we ask. You know, uh, I will come and put to pass that before they call I will answer and while they're speaking I will hear. Um, think about God's side of some of these things. When we pray and make certain requests of God and he answers those prayers, sometimes <laughs> God answers in ways that you can tell that he had to already be working to bring about that answer before the prayer was ever offered. You know, because some things are in place that enable the prayer to be answered that God had to put in place before we ever prayed the prayer. You know, God's providence in answering our prayers has been working long before we asked them. That's a pretty amazing thing. You know, to, to see how God is already pre-hearing our prayers and pre-setting things up to where the answer will be there. That's so much responsiveness on God's part. Thoughts and comments about that? And then look at verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. Reminds you back of chapter 11. And the ideas of the peace and harmony between diverse people that in Christ are brought together. Ephesians chapter 2, where the preaching of reconciliation and peace between God and man, but also between men and men, like the Jews and the Gentiles. You know... Uh, you've got you've got perfect harmony that God establishes between diverse people, between the predator and the prey. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Is that is that unusual to see a lion eating straw? Why would that be unusual? Maybe lions are predators. Yeah, they're carnivorous, don't eat straw, but they do in God's order of things. You know, he changes the nature of the lion to where he's no longer erect. You know, God changes our nature. We may have been strifeful, contentious, self-willed people. He makes us peaceful and harmonious and compassionate and loving. And uh, dust will be the serpent's food. the idea of dust being your food. (laughs) Do it have something to do with in Genesis 3 where it talks about death, death on the serpent's belly? Yes. I think the serpent here, we go back to Satan's use of the serpent and the temptation, the curse placed upon him. I mean, what was the basic curse on the serpent himself? Crawling. <clears throat> yeah, he's crawling the ground. I'm assuming that means that prior to that curse, snakes had legs. But, you know, now they're, they're wriggling on the ground and eating the dust it implies the idea of defeat. You know, that, that they just have to eat dust. And so God's going to defeat the serpent, defeat the curse, and bring blessing for his people. They will do no evil or harm at all My holy mountain, whether it's serpent, lion, or whatever. God is going to bring security for his people, I mean this picture is an incredible picture and it's really referring to the blessings we have in Christ and I said this earlier but when you come to Isaiah and you see these blessings you imagine what the Jews of Isaiah's day would have thought when they read this they would have thought, oh this is so awesome, I can't wait, oh I hope I'm still alive to see this it would be so exciting and we are the recipients of this exciting blessing and we may ho-hum you know, we don't appreciate it, we don't value <laughs> it. So we really need to uh, to come to see the blessings we have in Christ the same way that Jews would have who would have read a passage like. Comments
1: and thoughts on all this. Larry yeah, one thing about this is that, I mean, this is maybe a little bit off the subject, but um, one of the real challenges of people in the religious world is they look at this language, and many times they take it, it's literally, and just like when we get to Revelation, you're looking for a thousand-year-old Christ, and you're looking for the true battle of Armageddon, and they make, make some of it just literal, and really is this symbolic language that pictures these rich blessings that we have in Christ, and it just really, um, um, really misunderstands. just studying Jehovah's Witnesses and some of the applications that they make of some which of is really twist. Uh, you know like some of the Jews too when you talk about them looking forward to being blessings, they were looking forward to physical blessings in the sense of and that was their view of Christ and the kind
0: of he would be so they, they had a distorted view of, of good good point yes there are people who think this is going to be fulfilled literally and they miss it uh, a, because they're not spiritually focused enough as they read the Bible, and B, because they miss some clear passages. One thing that I would suggest you do about that, look at Isaiah 11 for a minute. Isaiah 11 is the same context. Look at Isaiah 11, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. It's saying the very same thing, talking about the wolf and the lamb dwelling together. Uh, talking about the town and the bear grazing together, talking about the lion will straw like the ox and, and uh, the child will be able to play with the snake and all that. Look at 11.10. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples. In his resting place will In that day, the Gentiles will come in, and that passage is quoted by Paul in Romans 15 as applicable to his day in the bringing in of the Gentiles. So the fact that this picture in Isaiah 11, parallel to Isaiah 65, even has a verse that says, in that day, and Paul says, that applies now is a divine commentary on the time frame of the application of this. Well, clearly now, you still have to keep the lions caged up in the zoo, so we're not talking about, you know, a literal change in the nature of carnivorous animals. We're talking about spiritual applications to change in the nature of carnivorous people who are biting and devouring each other. What did you say that was? That's Romans fifteen twelve. But people do miss this a lot. It's it's also interesting, you know, when you use figurative language, then it depends on the figure. But if you made this literal, it wouldn't fit, it wouldn't work. For example, Isaiah 35. Talking about the same period of time using similar figurative language, Isaiah 35, 9 says, no lion will be there. Now if the lion's eating straw, he's there. Well, this means there'll be no threat. There'll be nothing to devour us. Saying the lion eats straw is the same kind of figure. It means he's peace-loving. Uh, so, but if you took it literally, was the lion eating straw or is the lion not there? You know, the, the pictures contradict themselves if you take them literally. If you understand them spiritually, then they harmonize. Other comments and questions through chapter 65?
3: All right, good discussion.